Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 69, Charles and Diana's First Word. Hello everyone, Tom here. This episode of Retrospecticus, Charles and Diana's First Word, features a story about then Prince Charles's marriage to and subsequent divorce of Lady Diana Spencer. Myself and Gareth recorded the episode on the evening of September 7th, 2022. Less than 24 hours later, Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom made a lot of the information presented in the podcast obsolete by dying. Prince William is now the Prince of Wales, Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, is now Queen Consort, and Prince Charles is now King Charles III. We present to you the podcast in its original form because we can't be bothered to change it. We regret nothing. Listeners, I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Bart who we bart. Bart when we bart, 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 bart. And today I'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 10, Lisa's First Word. It first aired on December 3rd, 1992, two weeks after Mr. Plough. And having talked about Windsor Castle in the last episode, I'm staying with the British royal family because on the 9th of December 1992, six days after Lisa's word first aired, British Prime Minister John Major announced in Parliament that Prince Charles and Princess Diana had decided to separate. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. We're back, and we've hit episode 69. Nice. Mm-hmm. And I said the introduction with a straight face. I'm quite happy with that. Excellent. Of course, the main thing, uh, podcast-wise, that's happened in the last couple of weeks is we've lost one of our icons. Mikhail Gorbachev has sadly died. He has. He has. Uh, the man famous for... Pizza Hut adverts is no longer with us. Who will they get to advertise it now? Mm-hmm. Well, quite a lot has changed since we last recorded. I mean, might as well say a bit about my health in case anyone cares. I had a stroke last year and we tried to record a few months ago, but basically I was far too optimistic about how well I was. About five minutes into the recording, I sort of thought to myself, I'm in trouble here. And at the end of it, I was completely knackered. But but I do feel 100% better now, so hopefully this one will be fine. Excellent. And I've spent that time just knocking about, really. <laughs> and we've got a new Prime Minister as of recording this, Liz Truss, who I think is the first meme to become the British Prime Minister. Um, yes, so she's going to be introducing us to exciting pork markets and stopping us importing cheese and uh, just uh, doing whatever she can to make sure that oil and utility companies keep their obscene profits and it's going to be hell, basically. Fantastic. Great time to be Mr. Burns. Mm-hmm. Horrible time to be British. Mm-hmm. Yep. But enough of uh, the present day. Let's go back. Put on our rose-tinted spectacles. And go back to my glory days. For Gareth, I hear you cry. 
What was the UK number one that week? Well, brace yourself. For at number one that week was Whitney Houston with I Will Always Love You. Wow, that's a belter. Which means we're in for some more varied top ten action in the coming weeks. But first, let's give this Leviathan of the 90s charts its fair due before we deliberately try to ignore it for the next several months. Whitney Elizabeth Houston, born in 1963 and taught to sing by her mother, who was a backing singer for Elvis Presley. She progressed through gospel choirs, backing singing and fashion modelling to dominate the pop charts with her first two albums, Whitney Houston and Whitney. Clearly she knew more than me about making a career in music, but Jesus, those are unimaginative titles. In the early 90s, she began to dabble in Hollywood, starting, would you believe, with the immensely successful The Bodyguard, co-starring Kevin Costner as The Bodyguard. (laughs) Houston played an actor and singer in that film, so she was in safe territory. The film had originally been written for Diana Ross and Steve McQueen, but in true Hollywood fashion took an awfully long time to actually get made. The main release from the soundtrack to that film was this. A cover of a song written by Dolly Parton, who took it to number one in the country music charts twice, in 1974 and 1982. The latter being a re-recording for the soundtrack of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And it had also been recorded by one of the guest stars from our last episode, Linda Rodstadt. It was Rodstadt's version that Costner played to Houston when they were looking for a new song for the soundtrack. They'd had to scrap a version of What Becomes of the Broken Hearted after they found out it was to be used in the film Fried Green Tomatoes. And the rest is history. 14 weeks on top of the Billboard Hot 100, the longest-running number one from a soundtrack album. Number one in New Zealand for 14 weeks or so. In the UK and Australia for 10 weeks. Norway for 9. Ireland, France and Switzerland for 8. Belgium for 7. Germany, the Netherlands and Sweden for 6. And Austria for 5. And that's not even everywhere that it reached number one. Although sadly, and unusually for this section, I couldn't find its performance in Zimbabwe anywhere. It set records for being the best-selling song in a week for four consecutive weeks, records that would only be beaten by Candle in the Wind 97, which is a little bit appropriate for your subject today, Mm. It was eventually certified Diamond in January 2022, with Houston becoming only the third female artist to have a Diamond single and album. It won the 1994 Grammys for Record of the Year and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance and has been selected for preservation in the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. But which of the three? We can only speculate. The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 16.6. That's 28.6 million viewers, 13th in the ratings and the highest rated programme on Fox. It's the most watched first run episode in season four and the highest Nielsen since season two, episode one, Bart Gets an F. The production number is 9F08 and the credited writer is Jeff Martin, who we discussed in episode 19, Dead Webpage Society. He was given this one because of his experience in flashbacks on season three, episode 12, I Married Marge. The chalkboard gag is Teacher is Not a Leper. And as for the couch gag, it's the chorus line one. The family do high kicks as dancers, unicyclists, elephants and magicians, amongst others, festoon an extended set revealed behind the couch. It's absolutely spectacular on first view, but also goes on for a fair while, and because of that we'll be seeing it loads going forward. Basically every time they don't have quite enough material to finish an episode, out comes this one. But what actually happens in the episode? Well, 
The Simpsons are going to teach Maggie how to speak. Yeah, good luck with that one. Bart favours TV-friendly cursing and Lisa overly obscure linguistics. But you can't even say burlap after all that. Before they can resort to Fretful Mother magazine's recommended tongue extender, Bart asks what his first word was. It was, of course, I, quickly followed by Caramba, when he walked in on Homer and Marge's headbangers ball. <laughs> but what was Lisa's? Well, we're going to find out in this episode, so just hold your buddy horses, all right? The story begins in the unforgettable spring of 1983. Ms. Pac-Man struck a blow for women's rights. A young Joe Piscopo taught us how to laugh. And Homer and Marge lived on the Lower East Side of Springfield, surrounded by delightful Italian-American stereotypes. Homer comes home from work and is annoyed that Bart will only call him Homer rather than Daddy. Then we get a Bart Bad Behaviour montage, ending with Marge falling asleep during a bedtime story as Bart asks her to name all 30 sons and 30 daughters that she's claiming the prince and princess had. Tom, what names does she state before she falls asleep? Dennis, yep. Brad, yep. Mavis, yep. and Brad again. Yes, well done. I thought I'd be catching you out with that one, but apparently Ooh. not. Just as Bart hits his most brattish level of behaviour, Marge drops the bombshell that there'll be twice as much love in the household going forward, which sadly for Homer doesn't mean they'll start doing it in the morning. <laughs> He's actually quite pleased in principle, though later depictions of the scene will show him literally tearing his hair out at the revelation. Bart starts to imagine everything he could get away with once he has a baby to blame for misadventure, and he's on board too. Reality sets in pretty quickly, and despite Homer's plan to have Bart sleep with them until he's 21, a bigger place is very much a necessity. This leads to Bart being babysat by Patty and Selma, and earning a dollar with his spout medley. Marge and Homer go to Stinking Fish Realty. Tagline, with a name this bad, we've got to be good who deduce from their finances that they'll only be able to afford something in the area of town known as the Rat's Nest. Having ruled out a murder house, one next to a hog-fat rendering plant, a houseboat, and a house owned by cats, they stumble across the classic Simpsons house but can't afford it. Grandpa stumps up the cash by selling the house he won on a crooked 50s game show, so Homer invites him to live with the family. And three weeks later, he's sent to the retirement castle. We return from the adverts to see Maggie scanning cookies from Homer and to hear about moving day, which gives us more Bart and Homer tension than the arrival from next door of Flanders in his I Heart Webster t-shirt singing a wienerish song. Homer immediately borrows his TV tray. Bart begins feeling isolated, but never mind that because we're getting itchy and scratchy. In this Olympic-themed episode, 100-yard gash, Scratchy is lining up for a sprint and Itchy nails his tail to the track. So when the starter's gun fires, Scratchy's skeleton tears out of his flesh, wins the race, and gets its picture on the Wheaties box. No less than you'd expect from the official animated cat and mouse team of the 1984 Olympics, being held that year in Los Angeles at the height of the Cold War. And speaking of endorsements, we hear the Krusty Burger, the official meat-flavoured sandwich of the 1984 Olympics, are giving away free burgers when America wins gold medals. The catch being that the game cards are rigged to only include events that the USSR traditionally wins at. Krusty is then immediately informed that the USSR have withdrawn from the Olympics, meaning he stands to personally lose $44 million. I'm more annoyed that he read that message, given his canonical illiteracy, but there we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Bart, meanwhile, isn't taking well to losing his crib to the new baby, but Homer's got an idea that will 100% sort everything out. Having noticed that Bart likes Krusty, he's going to make him a clown-shaped bed. One slight downside, it's the scariest object ever made by man's two hands. <laughs> oh well, at least he's got a couple of days at the Flanders while Marge is in hospital, so he'll at least get some iron to help him play. Unfortunately, an unexpected encounter with Grandma Flanders leaves him further traumatised. Krusty is breaking down at this stage and promising to spit in burgers as the USA continues to batter the competition in the Olympics, quite literally in the case of Dredrick Tater. By the way, looked it up, Mike Tyson wasn't an Olympic boxer, but later ear loser Evander Holyfield was, and at that games as well, getting a bronze at light heavyweight. By the time we get to the hospital, Lisa's already been born, and Marge is already reading Fretful Mother. Cover story, Is Your Baby Too Cute? And when she comes home and horrendously puts upon Bart, immediately takes a dislike to his new sister. When he is given a rubella shot instead of a lollipop, the final straw has come, and he gives his sister an unscheduled haircut, tries to mail her, and gives her away to Flanders. Punishment for this leads him to try to run away from home, but he is stopped when Lisa says her first word, yes, we got there eventually, <laughs> but. The proud brother shows this off to his parents, and Homer is further dismayed when Lisa also calls him by his name. But she can say David Hasselhoff, so that's a good start. In the present day, whilst putting Maggie to bed, Homer is heard to opine that the sooner kids can talk, the sooner they talk back. And he's happy if she never says a word. After he's gone, Maggie takes out her pacifier and says, Daddy. Oh, that bit gets me every time. Another good flashback episode. The first three or four flashback episodes, um, they, they feel like the canon flashback episodes to me. Mm. And um, every one of them is, is really good. It expands on the, the Simpsons' past without taking away from their present. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I love that one. I mean, I love the fact that they got in a superstar just for that one line. I assume you're going to talk about it later. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoy seeing seeing stuff happening in, in the 80s, basically, because that was my very early childhood. I, I, I'd imagine I'm roughly the same age as Bart is in canon. Uh, obviously, that's all from an American perspective in The Simpsons, but uh, I can certainly relate to it somehow. And speaking of superstars, we have one technical character debut here. Liz Taylor. Now, it's an odd one because here she's a guest voice. She will be a character later in Season 4, Episode 22, Krusty Gets Cancelled. But when we get there... I'll have to deal with Johnny Carson, Bette Midler, Hugh Hefner, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Sideshow Luke Perry. So this is a handy opportunity to reduce my workload. Dame Elizabeth Rosemond Taylor, DBE. So that's the first thing I learned. I didn't realise she was British. Well, British-American. She was born in the London Borough of Barnet on February 27th, 1932. In 1939, the family moved to the United States to avoid the war in Europe. Well, for three years. <laughs> She was technically a child star of sorts, appearing in a few low-key roles, including in Lassie Come Home, before her breakthrough in a starring role in National Velvet. In 1946, her studio, MGM, also released a book called Nibbles and Me, written by Taylor about her pet chipmunk. Not an important part of the Elizabeth Taylor story, granted, but absolutely darling. Yes. 
She basically gained traction for a bit, becoming a bigger star as time went by, until the original Father of the Bride in 1950, in which she starred with Spencer Tracy and Joan Bennett. That grossed $6 million and seems to have pushed her to the next level of superstardom. And speaking of the bride, let's get this out of the way. She did say I do a lot. Starting with Conrad Hilton, described as a socialite and hotel heir, which sounds as close to wealthy gadabout as you're likely to get, in 1950. There was then British actor Michael Wilding in 1952, producer Mike Todd in 1957, who sadly died the following year, singer and actor Eddie Fisher in 1959, actor Richard Burton twice in a row in 1964 and 75, lawyer and politician John Werner III in 1976, and construction worker Larry Fortensky in 1991. This last one taking place at noted turbo-nonce Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch after the couple met in the Betty Ford Clinic. Nice. I've noted previously that it's a shame that some clearly talented people, usually women, are better known for their romantic lives than their work. So it was with mixed feelings that I scripted that previous sentence. And my only get out of this one is that, come on, it's Elizabeth Taylor. Mm-hmm. Her name is effectively synonymous with repeated matrimony, so I hope our listeners will therefore forgive me on this one. Back to her career. Under the old studio system, she was bound to MGM, but became interested in exploring more complex roles than she was being offered. By the mid-50s, she was getting that chance, firstly in Giant with Rock Hudson, that an adaptation of the Tennessee Williams play Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, which also featured the character of Big Daddy, that would later influence both professional wrestler Shirley Crabtree and the Simpsons spin-off special, although regular daddy may have come from somewhere else. (laughs) Her last film for MGM was Butterfield 8, sadly not starring Brian Butterfield. She was reluctant to do it, but it brought her an actor for Best Actress, and her very next film is arguably her best remembered, Cleopatra, in which she played the title role, and that's also where she met Richard Burton, starting an extramarital affair followed by two marriages that captivated America via the gutter press. Realistically speaking, she didn't need to work again after an amazing run in the 60s, so she did a lot of work for HIV charities, becoming a gay icon and recognised activist in the process. Throughout her entire life, she was not a well woman. She broke her back filming National Velvet, already being a scoliosis sufferer, and had a great deal of other health problems, including near-fatal pneumonia in the early 60s. Added to addiction issues, she was lucky to make it as far as she did, and passed away on 23 March 2011 at the age of 79. So to The Simpsons, it's a one-note joke that worked well for pre-publicity. This massive actress is coming in to voice a character that has never spoken before. My research wasn't clear on this, but they may also not have explicitly stated that it was going to be Elizabeth Taylor before broadcast, just that it was a very special guest. And the punchline, of course, is... She says one word and interacts with no one. I kind of like it, but some felt a little cheated, and that's perfectly valid. Reports vary as to whether Taylor was good or bad to work with. It appears to be true that she took a surprisingly large amount of takes, possibly up to 24, and that the performance was deemed too sexy for the most part. Which is, <laughs> what? It's, it's a bad look for a baby, really. How, how, how on earth can a baby saying daddy be sexy? If Elizabeth Taylor does it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, weird. So it seems like they did have to direct her to sound more like a child. Ooh, even that's a bit strange. Hmm. Some perspectives have her saying, 
Popular sexual expletive deleted, you, and storming out. Others have said she did this as a joke, possibly even on the first take. Matt Groening said she stormed out in an interview on Late Night with Conan O'Brien in 1994, but recanted on later DVD commentary. We may never know the truth, but we can certainly say that this performance was definitely a thing that happened in some kind of a way. And with that, we've reached Did You Know? Homer mentions that he's saving Lisa's college fund with Lincoln Savings and Loan. That's a very pointed reference, I thought. I should look that up. And lo and behold, in 1984, that particular savings and loan provider was being brought by one Charles Keating, who ran it into the ground. It was seized by the federal government in 1989 in an attempt to protect investors. And to be fair, it looks like they did an okay job compensating people, though not the full whack. So is that compensation how Homer got the money for his pumpkin futures? The answer is, maybe. The last episode of MASH, season 11, episode 16, Goodbye, Farewell and Amen, was first shown on February 28th, 1983, which gives us a better idea of the exact timing intended for the start of the episode. But, Cindy Lauper's version of Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and it wasn't the original, would you believe, didn't come out until September 6th, 1983. Usually I would hope someone got fired for that, <laughs> but would you believe the episode was repeated on September 19th, 1983? So they've got away with it just about. The headline on Lisa's birthday is Mondale to Heart. Where's the beef? And that is genuinely something that former Vice President Walter Mondale said to his Democratic primary opponent Gary Hart, Senator for Colorado, during a televised debate. Where's the beef was an advertising slogan used by fast food chain Wendy's around the time. And Mondale used it to draw attention to the vagueness of Hart's New Ideas initiative, essentially saying that it was lacking in substance. That debate was broadcast on March the 11th, 1984, meaning Lisa must have been born on the 12th. But don't look too far into it, just in case, eh? <laughs> the cloud bed is apparently inspired by a true story. Mike Reese's father built him a cloud-shaped bed. Photos do not appear to be available. <laughs> and whilst I'm certain Tom is about to mention this, the line, can't sleep, clown will eat me, has had a great cultural impact. Especially when allied to society's ongoing turn against clowns in general. Aside from A Thousand Memes, it also inspired the track Can't Sleep, Clouds Will Eat Me by Alice Cooper from his 2001 album Dragon Town, but only the expanded two-disc version released in 2002. Assumedly, the title has been pluralised as it would take more than one clown to eat Alice Cooper, which seems a fair appraisal. The arcade games seen in the Lower East Side are Stickball, Kick the Can, and Mumble Tea Peg. <laughs> but what the hell is Mumble Tea Peg? Well, I can exclusively reveal that it's a knife-throwing game with many variants, but usually involving either or both of an unusual trick or throw to land your knife blade first in the ground, or trying to get the knife stuck in the ground as close to your own foot or that of a friend as possible. That uh, sounds like fun. Yeah, maybe not my kind of fun. And finally, the Krusty Burma Olympic promotion obviously has its roots in reality, obviously because the USSR actually did withdraw from the 1984 Olympic Games, but also because this actually happened in real life to McDonald's. To paraphrase that titan of citation, Wikipedia, McDonald's had scratch-off cards printed with different Olympic events that could be redeemed for a specific food item if the American Olympic team won a medal at that specific event. A gold medal was worth a Big Mac, a silver, an order of french fries, and bronze, a Coca-Cola. 
They had made their cost estimates for the promotion based on the American medal count at the 1976 Montreal Olympics, which was 94 medals, including 34 golds. Tom, would you like to give a guess at what the US medal hall was without the USSR there? Oh, 150 gold? It's a little bit of that for gold, but you're in the in the ballpark for medals. So there was 174 medals in total. Okay. And that includes 83 golds. So from a cost perspective, that was nearly double the total medals, but over double the expected golds. Many locations suffered Big Mac shortages as a result, and McDonald's has stayed tighter lipped than crusty on the subject of the Olympic monies, but it must have cost them millions. A survivable amount for the chain, but certainly an unexpected blip. Despite this, they ran similar promotions for the Seoul and Barcelona Summer Olympics in 1988 and 1992, respectively. Hmm. And of course, they didn't have to worry about the 1980 Olympics because the US boycotted it. Yes. So maybe they used their savings from that to fund the uh, ill-fated mm, 84 campaign. Maybe. And that brings us, Tom, to our first memeable moments of the comeback. Oh, okay. So I've gone for 13. Usual disclaimer. Some people might say there's more. Some people might say there's less. So the first thing is a wonderful little bit of wisdom from Lisa. It's better to remain silent and be forceful than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And then Homer thinking, what does that mean? Better say something or you'll think you're stupid. Takes one and no one. Swish. And then there's the appearance of Fretful Mother magazine. Uh, that's certainly something that I can relate to. And then you've got Bart with his saucepan on his head, making a lot of noise, going, I am so great. I am so great. Then he got crusty advertising his own burgers, taking a bite out of one, immediately spitting it out and going, I almost swallowed some of the juice. Then you've got the attempted and failed piece of reverse psychology, which is Bart wanting to sleep in the crib, or cot as we'd say. Crib, crib, I'm the baby. Let's go, March. Leave the baby with his little crib. And then, yes, we've got the clown bed. I know you like clowns, so I made you this bed. Now you can laugh yourself to sleep. Can't sleep. Clown, leave me. If you should die before you wake. (laughs) Then, moving on to the 1984 Olympics, there's the uh, women's swimming event. Uh, The first part of the joke I won't mention, but... um, You've got the, and of course, many of the women represent countries that don't have swimming pools. Endlessly applicable to the recent Commonwealth Games, which surely only exists to be a competition that Britain win. Yes, interesting one, the Commonwealth Games. Uh, then you've got Bart's little stay in the Flanders house with Iron Helps Us Play. And then later on, them singing, I've got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart to stay. Not too much of that. <laughs> uh, and then you got Bart going out onto the landing and encountering Grandma Flanders. Well, hello, Joe. And you got Krusty saying, you people are pigs. Ah! You've got Kim Kwan dismounting onto what was later revealed to be a broken leg which is a great bit of animation. When we were watching that back, I realised I should have looked that up and seen if somebody actually did do a dismount on a broken leg, because it sounds plausible. It does, it does. But then again, I didn't know how real the uh, Krusty Burger promotion was. 
until then. Well, that's pretty good. Well, I'll tell you what then, uh, listeners, answers on the postcard. If, uh, if anybody knows if there's been any uh, successful dismounts or broken legs from uh, the, mm. uh, I think it was the concentric rings, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, the rings, I think, yeah. And finally, the closing line, sentimental music plays, I hope you never say a word. Daddy. No. Yes, that one's often, uh, often chased something rude, if I would. <laughs> so, Tom, much as I uh, despise the monarchy, please, in air quotes, take <laughs> me back to, uh, to Charles and Diana. Yes, Charles and Diana, a tabloid staple for most of the 80s and 90s. You couldn't look at a newspaper back then without seeing one of those two on the cover. Now, you may be thinking, oh, no, not another segment falling over the British royal family. Yes, it's true that pretty much every documentary you see on TV will pander to royalists as if the royal family had actually achieved something. I, on the other hand, am totally independent, so I have no problem whatsoever in being objective about the inbred parasites. <laughs> ah, this is a toad I can get behind. So, let's start at the beginning. Prince Charles was born on the 14th of November 1948 at Buckingham Palace. It was reported that his mother, at the time Princess Elizabeth, was in labour for 30 hours before he was delivered by caesarean section. Meanwhile, his father, Prince Philip, was away playing squash. He wasn't all bad, though. Apparently he had a bouquet of carnations and roses ready for when Elizabeth came round from her anaesthetic, and his first words to Charles were, you look like a plum pudding. It's fair to say that the nation celebrated the birth of Charles in a big way. At the Tower of London, the guns were fired to mark the occasion. Newborn babies were named Elizabeth and Philip in honour of the royal couple. Now, there's a couple of things to consider here. The country was in ruins following the end of the Second World War, so it must have been nice to have something to celebrate for a change. Also, in royalty, succession is a big thing, and Charles was the first of his generation. And of course, he was a boy, and we all know that men are superior to women, don't we? Ugh. Weirdly, the birth of Charles marked a break from strange British tradition. It was customary for a high-ranking member of the British government to be present at the birth of a royal child. Elizabeth's father, King George VI, put an end to it, saying, We will not have this witness. It's an odd tradition, but one that stretches all the way back to 1688, when the Catholic King James II was on the throne. His wife, Mary Beatrice, gave birth three months early. Although the room where it happened was full of visitors, the royal doctor somehow missed it. This led to rumours that the baby either died and was replaced with another one, Mary had faked her pregnancy, or that even dark magic was somehow involved. All of this played a role in the overthrow of James II in the Glorious Revolution, but that's another story altogether. Since then, it's been customary for a high-ranking cabinet member, like the Home Secretary, to witness the birth of a royal child, to make sure there's no foul play involved. Weirdness aside, Charles was baptised by the Archbishop of Canterbury a month later. Charles's sister, Princess Anne, was born in 1950. Then Elizabeth had her coronation in 1953 and became Queen Elizabeth II. It was then several years until the birth of their next child, with Prince Andrew <coughs> arriving in 1960, and finally Prince Edward was born in 1964. But back to Charles. After attending school at Cheam, he was sent to Gordonston, a place in the northeast of Scotland, not far from the city of Elgin. He had a tough time there, describing it as colditz with kilts. However, he also spent two terms at the Timbertop campus of Geelong Grammar School in Australia, 
southwest of Melbourne. Apparently, he had a much better time there, even going on a school trip to Papua New Guinea. When he got back to Gordonston, he was made head boy and stayed there to do his A-levels. After that, he went straight to university rather than joining the military, studying art at Trinity College, Cambridge. He came away with Desmond, to Tutu, making him the first British heir apparent to get a university degree. Rather than do anything with his degree, he followed in the family footsteps and went into the military. While still at university, he asked for and received RAF training, being taught how to fly a type of light aircraft called Chipmunk. Although I doubt he used it to blow dandelions at hay fever sufferers. <laughs> After graduating, he joined the Royal Air Force to train as a jet pilot, flying there himself. Once qualified, he joined the Navy, serving on ships such as the guided missile destroyer HMS Norfolk, and the frigates HMS Minerva and HMS Jupiter. In 1974, he qualified as a helicopter pilot and joined the 845 Naval Air Squadron, operating out of HMS Hermes, which later rebranded to HMS Every in an attempt to fool people into thinking that it wasn't shite. His last year of service was in 1976, when he was in command of the coastal mine hunter HMS Bronington. After he left the Navy, he was given £7,600 in severance pay, a considerable sum for the time. Uh, why he was given that money, I don't know. With the cash, he set up the Prince's Trust, a charity that aimed to help young people, a charity that still exists today. But now let's get on to the unattractive meat of this section, Prince Charles's love life. As the next in line to the British throne, the whole country was keeping an eye on him because they wanted to know what his future queen was going to be like. A great influence in Prince Charles's life was his great-uncle Lord Louis Mountbatten, a decorated World War II hero whose chequered past included the partition of India in 1947. Hmm. His attitude to matters of romance was basically, a man should have lots of affairs before he gets married, but he's got to marry a woman who would make a suitable wife before anyone else does. So in short, men can shag around, but women can't. Which is nice. So what about Charles's girlfriends? Well, he met his first girlfriend in 1970, before he left to do his service in the Navy. And her name? Camilla Shand. They bonded over a shared love of polo. You know, that game where you... It's basically hockey on horses. But alas, while Charles was in the Navy, Camilla got engaged to Andrew Parker Bowles. The couple had two children, with Tom, whom I've seen him on MasterChef, born in 1974, and Laura in 1978. Charles and Camilla remained good friends, with Charles becoming Tom's godfather. In the meantime, Charles dated various other women, including Lady Sarah Spencer. In case you're thinking, that doesn't sound right, it's because Lady Sarah is Lady Diana's elder sister. In fact, she claims to have introduced Charles and Diana to each other, which must have been kind of awkward. As far as the royal family was concerned, Diana ticked all the boxes. She was born into the British nobility, her father was John Spencer, and he inherited the title Earl Spencer in 1975. John Spencer from the John Spencer Blues Explosion. <laughs> I had no idea he had such a pivotal role in the, in the British monarchy. Ah, oh, sadly not. The family had been connected to the royals for some time, with her grandmother serving as ladies-in-waiting to the Queen Mother. On top of that, she was, to use a vulgar term, good breeding material. She was 12 years younger than he was, and she was seen as someone who would be quiet and have babies. Charles proposed to Diana on February 6th, 1981, when Diana was 19, by some accounts in Camilla's garden. The engagement was officially announced on February 24th, and the loved-up couple did an interview on British TV. Now, this interview is one of the cringiest things I've seen, and I've heard the Camillagate tapes, but more on them later. 
At first, it seems quite relaxed, kind of odd given that the eyes of the world's press were on them. Diana's wearing her very fancy engagement ring. But Charles then makes a comment about what Diana was like when she was 16, the kind of thing that would see you you treat these days. At the end of the interview, they are pretty much asked, are you in love? Diana says, of course. Now, imagine you're the heir to the British throne and you've just got engaged. How should you be answering the question, are you in love? I would imagine that's a slam dunk, yes. You'd have thought so. But Charles answers with, whatever in love means. <laughs> like, oh, what a romantic. Yeah, but talk about getting off on the wrong foot. So, what happened on July the 29th, 1981, was the television event of the decade, the wedding of Charles and Diana at St. Paul's Cathedral. It's hard to overstate just how big this was. It was a bank holiday, so we all got the day off. He had a global television audience of 750 million and 2 million people lined the parade route. Diana's wedding dress was designed by Elizabeth and David Emmanuel, contained 10,000 pearls and had a train that was 25 feet long. The couple were married by the Archbishop of Canterbury. In a break from tradition, Diana did not say that she would obey Charles, which caused some discussion. While they were saying their vows, Camilla was one of the guests looking on. Speaking of guests, it was an international event with Nancy Reagan representing the USA. Various Commonwealth leaders attended, including the president of Gambia, Dauda Jawara. While he was away, members of the Gambian Socialist Revolutionary Party staged a coup against him. <laughs> the coup only came to an end when troops from neighbouring Senegal intervened. I mean, Gambia is a really weird shape. So in West Africa... You've got the Gambia River, which has got the country of the Gambia around it, and then that is all surrounded by Senegal. Really weird. I'll have to look at how, into how that happened. It's very odd. Anyway, back to the wedding. After the ceremony, they set off on their honeymoon, and their trip included a visit to Gibraltar, which is why King Juan Carlos of Spain didn't attend the ceremony. After they got back, they spent some time in Balmoral, where they posed for a few photos. While they were there, Diana's suspicions were aroused when she opened up Charles's diary and pictures of Camilla fell out. On top of that, she found that Camilla had given Charles a pair of cufflinks with Charles and Camilla's initials on them. It's fair to say that Charles and Diana's marriage was an unhappy one right from the start. Soon after they were married, Diana became pregnant, with her pregnancy publicly announced on November 5th, 1981. Twelve weeks into it, Diana was so depressed that she threw herself down the stairs. Prince William was born on the 21st of June 1982, and while he was still a baby, he was taken on a tour of Australia and New Zealand. And Prince Harry was born on September 15th, 1984. But by 1986, Charles and Diana were each having extramarital affairs. Charles started seeing Camilla again, and Diana was seeing one Major James Hewitt. There's a malicious rumour that Hewitt is Harry's real father, with people pointing to the fact that the two look very much alike. However, Diana and James Hewitt weren't together until two years after Harry was born, so there's no truth to it whatsoever. Also, all upper-class men in Britain look exactly the same. Y yeah, there's that too. However, during this time, Diana was doing a huge amount of good. Back in 1987, the UK was gripped by the AIDS epidemic. This mysterious virus was making people very ill, and ignorance and homophobia were commonplace. This was most true of the Thatcher government, who, fighting back against a wave of sex education and acceptance, introduced Section 28, a series of laws 
that banned the promotion of homosexuality. There's a clip of Thatcher at conference where she's saying, We are teaching our children that they have an inalienable right to be gay. Which is one of the weird reasons why people really hated Thatcher, because she was horrible. But one thing that people get wrong about Section 28 is it's very easy to think that it was some sort of archaic law that had been on the books for centuries. It was introduced by the Tory government in response to increasing acceptance of homosexuality. It wasn't repealed until the year 2000 in Scotland and 2003 in England, so it was still in effect 20 years ago. We've still got a long way to go. But in April 1987, Diana opened the first specialist HIV-AIDS units at the London Middlesex Hospital. She met and shook hands with the patients there without wearing gloves. The eyes of the dreaded media were on her, and she helped to demonstrate to everyone that HIV wasn't transmitted through skin-to-skin contact. She did a similar thing in Nepal, meeting and greeting people with leprosy. By the late 80s, the relationship between Charles and Diana had completely broken down. Charles was seeing Camilla again, and Diana was seeing other people, including the art dealer Oliver Hall. Yes, that's how it's pronounced. When he rejected her, she apparently left over 300 silent phone calls. Towards the end of the marriage, it felt more like a battle. The public were largely on Diana's side, the establishment on Charles's. In June 1992, the book Diana, Her True Story was released. The author, Andrew Morton, had recorded a series of interviews with Diana, where she spilled the beans about her suspicions of Charles's relationship with Camilla. With all this going on, the British Prime Minister John Major made the following statement to Parliament on December 9th, 1992, six days after Lisa's first word first aired. Shall I try and do a John Major impression? Please do, you can't be any worse than Rory Bremner was. (laughs) I am my own man. The House will wish to know that the decision to... To separate has no constitutional implications. The succession to the throne is unaffected by it. The children of the prince and princess retain their position in the line of succession, and there is no reason why the Princess of Wales should not be crowned queen in due course. The Prince of Wales' succession as head of the Church of England is also unaffected. Neither the prince nor the princess is supported by the civil list, and this position will remain unchanged. That was terrible. Oh, took me back. If you could just have been eating some peas, yes. right there. I am my own man. There's parts of that speech which showed the issue was far from over. For example, how on earth could Diana become queen if she was separated from Charles? How could she have a claim to the throne? With the need for clarity on such issues and matters like money and titles far from settled, things got even uglier. In August of 1992, the Sun published details of a phone conversation between Diana and her friend James Gilby. A retired bank manager called Cyril Renan had a hobby of eavesdropping on random non-commercial radio frequencies, listening to conversations, and recording the ones he found most interesting. I don't know what's weird of that, or just the lack of security of transmissions in the early 90s. One night in 1989, he heard Diana's voice, so he hit record. He eventually took his tape to the aforementioned newspaper, who paid him for it. They quickly worked out a way to make money off it, as readers could call a phone line to hear it in full at a cost of 36p a minute, so basically a tenner to hear the whole conversation. In it, Diana discusses her worries with Gilby, who refers to her as Squidgy or Squidge 53 times. So in true tabloid tradition, the recording became known as Squidgygate. Now you might think that that was pretty bad for Diana, but worse was to come for Charles, much worse. January 1993 saw the unsavoury event known as Camillagate. 
Now, I've thought about it, and I'm not going to sully this podcast by reading excerpts of it. Basically, a journalist managed to tap Charles's phone line and recorded an intimate conversation between himself and Camilla. If you really want to hear what they said, just Google Camilla Gate, but beware, it's more cringeworthy than Liz Trust trying to convince people to be excited about pork markets. This was a big moment in the history of Charles and Camilla because before then, it was only Diana who was claiming that the relationship existed. Now it was clear for all to see. In an attempt to improve his media image, Charles had cameras follow him for a year and a half, and Jonathan Dimbleby interviewed him. In the interview, Charles was asked if he was faithful to Diana. His reply was, yes, until it became irretrievably broken down, us both having tried. So basically, yes, I was faithful until I wasn't. That went down well. And 1995 was another important year in the story. It saw Diana continue to be in the public eye, being given a Humanitarian of the Year award by Henry Kissinger, of all people. Which is a bit like being given an award for gardening by Fred West. Did he have his glasses? <laughs> uh, yeah, he did. He, he didn't drop them in the toilet. <sighs> but 1995 also saw Camilla and Andrew Parker Bowles announce that they would divorce. Then there was the infamous Martin Bashir interview, something I'm not entirely comfortable talking about because it was obtained under false pretenses. In it, Diana talks candidly about her life, Prince Charles and her affairs, but she only did so after Martin Bashir had faked bank statements. The bank statements implied that people close to Diana had been paid to spy on her. Revealing this gained the trust of Diana and her brother Earl Spencer, and they agreed to the interview. So, yeah, dodgy as hell. The interview was watched by 20 million people and put Charles in an even worse light. Shortly afterwards, the Queen wrote to both of them, advising them to divorce. After weeks of negotiation, the divorce was finalised. Diana would receive a one-off payment of £17 million and £400,000 a year after that. Diana kept the title Princess of Wales, but lost the right to be styled as Your Royal Highness, instead being known as Diana Princess of Wales. They shared custody of children. Following the divorce, Diana continued to make further public appearances, most famously visiting Angola with the Halo Trust to raise awareness of landmines. But of course, her life after the divorce didn't last for long. Now, I don't want to dwell on the death of Diana for too long, because that's a whole other story in itself. But on the night of August 31st, 1987, Diana died in a car crash in Paris. This came as a huge shock to everyone, even if you were a staunch anti-royalist, because it felt like the global narrative had been pulled from under your feet. For decades, the newspapers were full of Diana stories, and then at 3am, all that stopped. It felt like you were watching a film. So you're 90 minutes into the plot, really getting into it, enjoying all the action, then suddenly while the characters are all asleep, there's a big explosion, everyone dies and the credits roll. All of a sudden, everyone had to get used to a world without Princess Diana. It was very odd. I mean, I remember uh, my dad worked as a a director of a newspaper in Norfolk, and he got a call in the middle of the night saying, something's happened, you've got to come down. I think everyone was affected by it in some way. It's my dad's birthday, so uh, he gets uh, reminded about it most years. Ah, okay. Uh, myself, I just got back from a uh, a gig by the uh, not historically successful uh, band Tampasm uh, at Bedford <laughs> Esquires, uh, and uh, I just went to sleep because I was drunk. Um, okay. So yeah, 
Next, next day, I had to start getting used to a world without dialect, which mm. mainly involved Radio 1 just playing, as I remember it, the theme tune to Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, for five <laughs> years. Yes. Tampas and that's rather relevant, considering what some of the Camilla Kate tapes. Oh, which again, we don't recommend. Uh, yeah. As for Prince Charles, he's led a fairly unassuming life, just pottering about like a king in waiting for the most part. There are exceptions, of course. It will be no surprise that I'm a sceptic, and I don't like Prince Charles because he promotes alternative medicine. But again, that's another story. On April the 9th, 2005, Charles and Camilla got married to a rather muted fanfare. There was no bank holiday, millions of spectators, or a TV audience, and the Queen and Prince Philip didn't even attend the ceremony. Camilla now has the title Duchess of Cornwall. So where does this leave the monarchy when the Queen is eventually no longer with us? As part of her recent Diamond Jubilee, the Queen wrote that she wants Camilla to have the title Queen Consort when Charles becomes King, rather than just Queen. She isn't in the line of succession, so she will never be Queen. Now, before I finish up, I just want to offer my own thoughts on this whole mess. For me, it's pretty obvious that you run into huge problems when people marry for something other than love. Ultimately, Charles and Camilla loved each other, and Charles didn't love Diana. In a way, I kind of feel sorry for him. He couldn't help the fact that he loved Camilla, and he must have been sort of pressured into marrying Diana. You know, people around him would go, yeah, she's good, marry her. Wouldn't the world be a better place if we were all allowed to love who we love without establishment interference? Hear, hear. Now, unfortunately, I just mentioned Prince Charles' appearances in The Simpsons in the very last episode that we did, <laughs> which leaves me a bit bereft of material. So I looked forward a few years and discovered that there wasn't a first-run Simpsons until nearly a month after the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, that being Season 9, Episode 1, The City of New York vs. Homer Simpson, first shot on the 21st of September 1997, because they were on a summer break at the time. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this may be a good time, if one indeed exists, to tackle a figure inextricably linked with that event. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Elton John! <laughs> okay. Yes, Sir Elton Hercules John CHCBE, born Reginald Kenneth Dwight, was reportedly a close friend of Diana before her death and decided that the best way to remember his friends was with the most blatant cash grab the world has ever seen. Releasing a very hastily re-recorded version of his song Candle in the Wind as Candle in the Wind 97. To call it a rewrite is generous, since he changed about two words. But it bloody worked. Fairly certain it's still number one somewhere. Zimbabwe, perhaps. (laughs) Elton most notably appears in Season 10, Episode 14, I'm with Cupid, getting kidnapped by Homer and stuffed in a dog carrier, before performing a version of your song for Apu and Manjuba. To call it a rewrite is generous since they changed about two... Hang on, I'm seeing a pattern here. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Elton is also seen, but not heard, because he's expensive, in two more celeb-centric episodes. Season 18, episode 16, Homerazzi, where he is one of the many celebrities inexplicably in Springfield to be papped by photographer Homer, which unfortunately again ties into the death of Diana. And season 21, episode 14, Angry Dad the Movie, which is a great episode with some good points to make about the entertainment industry, but which I haven't seen for a while, so I can't tell you exactly where we see Elton, though I'd wager it's at the Oscars, as we do visit them in that episode. And on that, Elton John Shell. Don't forget, you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. 
And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org. And check out our 90s playlist on Spotify, which I should probably share again, because it's been a hell of a while since anybody uh, was treated to that. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Great to be back, America. <laughs> Hope you all enjoyed episode 69, everyone. Nice. Bye. Thank you.